end of a saga and the beginning of another, which is why I wanted us to start at the end of chapter 11 to move into chapter 12. You remember chapters 1 through 11 had scenes of of good things, of, of great glory and joy and celebration. God created the world. He made a covenant with man. But overwhelmingly, chapters 1 through 11 are dismal. We saw God destroy the earth with water. We saw Adam and Eve sin against their creator, and the world became corrupt. We saw Noah get drunk and pronounce curses on his offspring. We saw the first two brothers in all humanity, Cain and Abel, at so uh, much difference and odds with one another that Cain killed Abel. And the cherry on top, at the end of chapter 11 here, right, or the beginning of chapter 11, civilization is leaving God so far in the distance that they determined to build for themselves a tower that would reach heaven and make a name for themselves, and that God would graciously judge them, separating them by both language and Location, And so at the end of chapter 11, we are longing for something better, right? We, we start reading the Bible with, with so much optimism, and we see sin and sin and sin and sin. It seems like we're always longing for something better. We want to see people turn to God rather than away from the Lord, right? We want to see hope for the human race, not more cursings. And Moses meets all of these desires by turning our attention to the generations of Terah. generations of terror. That's what we see in uh, the end of, of chapter 11. And before we even look at the people here, I think we need to answer some questions about the place. You'll, you'll remember that God changed their language and they migrated all over the earth after the sin that took place at Babel, right? We remember that Shem's people landed over uh, on the, the east, the hill country of Mesopotamia, Ham's people landed somewhere in the middle of Asia, near Asia and Africa, the Red Sea. And Japheth's people are somewhere doing their own thing, right? Living the island life and the beaches and, and uh, drinking um, drinks with little umbrellas and stuff. Uh, they they kind of get out of the picture. But to even think about this, you know, is, is, is kind of simplistic to put it that way. Because remember, at the end of chapter 10, there's 70 nations. 70 nations. There's a lot of people groups that had been formed by this point. And the one little tribe that we peek into now is called Ur. U-R. Ur. Uh, literally in Hebrew, it means flame or light. And so maybe we could, we could interpret this as, as a light coming out of darkness. And it, and it kind of is, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Another reason uh, that it was called Ur is for their worship of the lesser light. The moon. The town was full of moon worshippers. There was a man named Leonard Woolley who spent most of his life uncovering the context of Ur. He wrote a book called Treasures from the Royal Tombs of Ur. He scaled the map of the city and he found a big ziggurat, a tower like the one they were building in chapter 11, and a temple built for Nana or Nana, not your grandma, who was known as the moon god of those days. There was also to be found in that day something called the Great Death Pit, in which the great queen Puabi would be buried and her body decorated elaborately in all of her gold and silver and carnelian and ivory. Even 73 of her own servants were buried with her as a sacrifice 
for a good life from the moon god. Now, why do I bring all this up, right? What does this have to do with Abraham? When we read this passage, I think we're tempted to look at Terah's family like a little homeschool club that God blessed. said, I want y'all, right? Because y'all are good. Um, We see them distant, separated from sin in those days. But I don't think that was the case. Babel has fallen to pieces, but the values of Babel had not fallen. If you remember, Nimrod decided to build his little tribe of rebels in the hill country of Mesopotamia where Shem's descendants landed. Ur was not very far from where Babel would have taken place. It was a pagan land, a godless culture, a people of great wealth who were literally worshiping the moon. And I don't want to tell you this, but Abram was probably one of them. He was probably one of them. Terah was probably one of them. Abram's brothers, Nahor and Haran, were probably one of them. Their wives, Sarai and Milcai, Milka, were probably one of them. This is where they met. This is where they grew up. This was their culture. This was their life. This was all they knew. And to foreshadow an important detail for us, he says uh, in verse 30 that Sarai was barren. She could not have children. To, to show us an even more uh, emptiness that, that was already there uh, and to foreshadow some amazing things that the Lord would do next. We need to remember that down the road. But Terah knows, perhaps, that this isn't the best place to raise a family, to build a legacy. So verse 31, his goal is to move the family to Canaan. Before getting there, they stop in Haran, which is also the name of Terah's third son, uh, who's already died. And there's some interesting things about these two uh, locations here. Uh, In Hebrew, the name of Terah's third son and the city of Haran are different, but transliterated the same. You'll notice that in the beginning of our scripture reading this morning, 1127, um, Haran died, his third son, in the presence of his father. And now in verse 32, where does Terah die? In Haran. So I think there's some interesting allegory going on there. But, but secondly, this is the first time Canaan is referenced to as a city rather than you know, just the son of, of, of Ham. We, we know it as Noah's grandson, right? Who, who was cursed with servanthood to Shem and Japheth. We know that the descendants of Canaan settled in a specific lo- location, but now, generations later, there, there is a real physical place called Canaan. This is the first time we see that. And we're reminded that the only glimmering hope that we have so far in the Scripture is this blessing and curse that was pronounced on Noah's offspring, that uh, Shem and Japheth would be blessed through Canaan's fall through Canaan's sin. There is hope here. We, we, are, we are eager for something to happen now that they're journeying to Canaan, right? So, um, we needed to hear that context because now we're going to talk about the call of Abram, the obedience of Abram, and the confirmation of God. Call of Abram, the obedience of Abram, and the confirmation of God. So again, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the Lord said. Comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? Now the Lord said. We haven't heard the Lord talk in a while. And that's exactly how we should read this. 
Why is the Lord talking now? Abram was a pagan. He didn't know God. He didn't know the creator Yahweh. We, we look to this, this person as the father of faith, don't we? Father Abraham, we teach our killed children. We leave off that he was probably this moon worshiper in the, the town of Ur, right? This is arguably the first conversion in the whole Bible. How cool is this if, if we understand his context and where he came from? A nomadic moon worshiper turned Yahwehist. How? Because God said. God spoke. See, this isn't only the call of Abraham to do something, but the call of Abram to be something. This is how every single testimony of salvation begins. God speaks. God says. The Bible opened. Ears opened. They hear the good news. They hear the truth. Lives are changed. God may not speak audibly to us as He once did, but He's given us Gentiles 66 books of His divine voice so that we can hear Him and turn from our pagan ways and live forever. Even though this passage is largely about obedience and faith, don't miss who initiated all of this. How did this happen? It wasn't Abram. It wasn't Abram's decision. God did this. God initiated all of this. This is God's seal over Abram, not just giving him a commission, but claiming this pagan as an adopted child who will be his and his forever. So he changes him by speaking to him. We remember the voice of God that woke up the heavens and the earth, created all that we know. And so something was being created in Abram as he spoke. And and now he, he does give him something to do. He says, go from your country, kindred, father's house to a land that I will show you. Notice how all the details there are on the front end, not on the back end. I'm going to tell you everything you need to leave behind, but not much about where to go. Leave your land. Leave your family. Leave your possessions. Leave life as you know it. The destination isn't important right now. We'll, we'll, we'll tell you when we get there. That's a hard sell, right? Any of y'all interested in a deal like that? I'm afraid we wouldn't be so willing to take those odds. We want more details, more plans. We need more concrete evidence, better promises than that. And yet all Abraham needed was God's word to surrender his entire life to him. Because family, the only adequate response to God's word is total and complete surrender. If you walk away from God's word unchanged, you don't know who was speaking to you. Abram knew in a moment the holiness, the power, the wisdom, the glory of this God who had just revealed himself. And he said, goodbye moon. Hello Yahweh. Here is all I have. It's yours. Family, God requires all of us. In a real spiritual sense, we must leave country, family, possessions for the cause of Christ. Pascal famously said, what have you to lose by believing in Jesus? Nothing, he says. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you might lose everything. But what was Abram's experience? Lose it all to follow the Lord. And and so we lose all to follow Christ willingly. the, The Lord said, hate your father and mother. In comparison to your love now and newfound devotion toward me. 
Sell what you have, all your possessions, give it away to the poor, come be my disciple, he says. Leave behind your Jewish traditions and join this new nation of Christian sons and daughters of God. Go, therefore, and make disciples. This is what happens when we have an encounter with the Almighty. We are changed in an instant, death to life, pagan to Christ. God promises to show Abram the land, but he does make other promises too. He says, I will make of you a great nation, bless you, I'll make your name great, and you yourself will be a blessing. And, I, and he says, I'm not just talking to you, Abram, I, I'm going to do this to all those who bless you. And, and in fact, I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth through you. There's a clear reversal from what's happened in the first 11 chapters. Cursing, 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 cursing. Now what does the Lord say? Blessing, 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 blessing. Right? He decrees that the new future, the new saga, is going to be full of blessing and not cursing. The Lord loves to bless. Do you know that? And the Lord loves to bless through His people. The Lord loves to bless through you and through me. He loves to take a sinner like Abram and make him the father of blessing. To turn one man into a nation of blessing. A nation that would be known as Israel. And from this nation, all the families of the earth would be blessed, including families like yours and mine. This passage is so important. It's going to, be, it's going to become a foundation for, for the rest of Genesis. We need to keep coming back to this. But in the meantime, consider God's desire to use you to bless others. You know, we, we had a leadership meeting last week, and one of the things that we really just threw around a lot was evangelism. We talked about how the Great Commission has been affected by a pandemic in our world. Uh, you don't hear a lot of stories about baptisms right now, do you? Or people, you know, coming to the Lord and, and being changed, and, and God's Word uh, just, just uh, converting people, right? But we went around the room and we noticed that none of our lives had really changed. Same jobs, same people, same contacts, same location. I don't know if that's the majority case for you guys, for the whole church or not, but we did discover something. Maybe evangelism is struggling not because of the coronavirus, but because we weren't doing it before the coronavirus. Perhaps we willfully withhold blessing because we just don't want to do it. Maybe there's a twofold problem here. Maybe sin is keeping us from blessing the world with the gospel. Maybe we are truly selfish, inward minded, and have forgotten that God spoke to us and told us to surrender all and make disciples. On the other hand, maybe you're in this group and you want to evangelize. You want to be a blessing to the world and share the good news of Jesus. But maybe you're a new Christian. Or you've, you've never really been discipled. you never had somebody show you how to do it. We as the church want to come alongside you and help you. Show you how to do it. That's our job, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To do the work of an evangelist. So, so, so let's work together. But what I want you to know is that God wants to use every single Christian. Not just the televangelists or the people who travel around and do all the public speaking. God wants to use every single believer to bless the whole earth for His glory. And He could have done it without Abram, couldn't He? But He wanted to use Abram. 
And he could do it without you. But he wants to use you. That's the way it is. So is it sin that's keeping you back? Or training? You need help. Tell someone. Either way, if it's sin or you just need help, tell someone. Will you? Tell someone. Of course, this story would be very short, depending on how Abram responded, wouldn't it? Will he really leave all the familiarity of life and family and everything that he knew, his culture, to to go and follow this God? We see in in verse 6, over 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram went. Doesn't say that Abram waited until the timing was a little bit more preferable. There was some family stuff going on, and he just wanted to, you know, dot some I's, cross some T's, you know, just wait till timing was a little better. It doesn't say Abram would pray about it for months on end to see if it was a good fit and never get back to him. Let me pray about that, God. I'll get back to you. It doesn't say Abram tried to find a few more details about the destination before making a commitment. We have no follow-up questions. Man, I'd have a million. Abram has none. He just goes. He just goes. And he didn't just go. It says Abram went as the Lord had told him. He didn't just go because he felt like a change. He went because God commanded it. This recalls back to, to Noah, right? How many times does it repeat itself? Noah did all that God commanded. Noah did all that God commanded. Noah did all that God commanded. And, and the verb here, go, is repeated three times to show us Abram's obedience. First is in verse 1, God said go. Verse 4, Abram went. Same word. Verse 9, Abram journeyed on. Same word. God commanded it. Abram did it. And so we ask, where does one find the power to obey God? The power to obey God comes from the faith that God supplies. Even if it's the faith of a mustard seed, Jesus says it can move a mountain. And that's not because it's something we produce, but because it's something God produces. Ephesians 2 says clearly that this is a gift of God so that no man may boast. God spoke in verse 1, Abram was changed by the faith that awakened his soul. This newfound faith gave him the strength to now obey. This is how it works, right? We, we taught the five solos back in October, the Reformation, the five solos of, of Scriptures. And, and um, you, you may remember the way I taught this. Uh, has anybody in this room ever eaten cereal? without a bowl or some type of vessel, right, to, to eat it out of. Maybe, maybe you, you, you pour the cereal in your mouth and you, you put some milk in your mouth and you just take it a little bite by bite. I wouldn't recommend that, you know, if you, if you want to get choked, that's a good thing to do, I guess. But, but you need something. You need a container, right? You need something to hold these precious ingredients, the sweet, sugary cereal to wake you up in the morning. What is the bowl? Why is that so important? The faith is the bowl, the vessel that holds for us the grace of salvation. God doesn't just say, here's some cereal and milk. He gives us the bowl too. Being able to eat the cereal might now be described as the strength to obey. God provides it all. 
One cannot obey unless the ingredients are properly given and put in place. So God provides the ingredients and puts them in place. God provides what we need to obey. And so we can read passages like 1 John 2 and not have a panic attack, right? Because this is simple. Verse 3 of 1 John 2, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is a theological foundation that we must understand and get in our brains. There is no obedience without faith and there is no faith without God. If we have had an encounter with Jesus Christ, in which he has illumined our minds and awakened us to his truth, this passage should be common sense. Of course, obedience is the natural result of faith. Of course it is. We've experienced this, right? Anyone who doesn't obey but says they have faith is what? A liar. Faith produces obedience. So so why do we struggle with such a simple concept? Perhaps because we know a few generations later, one of Abram's children, old Moses, would be speaking to the Lord too. And things would go a little differently, right? Moses pulled out every excuse in the book in order to not obey God. And he sort of eventually obeyed God, I guess, with Aaron and a lot of prodding. Uh... But, but we're the people making excuses like Moses. We're the people trying to get out of God's commandments. We don't want to share the gospel with people. We don't want to fight sin. We don't want to take responsibility as a member in the local church. We don't want to meditate on God's word day and night. So then, are we liars? Does that mean we haven't been changed? Does that mean the truth is not in us? For some of us, hear me, this is really important. It may be that the truth is not in you. If you do not obey God, it may be that the truth is not in you. I mean, and I I think this, we kind of know this, right? The Christian South is flooded with people who ain't really Christians. And when the Lamb's book of life is read aloud, I think we would get some names wrong. And that should terrify us. That should make us take church membership really seriously, like we're trying to do. Consider your ways. Do you truly know Jesus? Have you been changed? Have you been given faith? If you have, I do think there's another category that we find ourselves in. Where Moses was and where Abram ended up. See, Abram left at 75 years old. He took many of his family members and possessions and set out for the land of Canaan. And and there's some different interpretations for the people that he acquired that came with him. Some say these might have been slaves. Some say these might have been hired hands, like shepherds or people to keep all his stuff. Um, there, there's different views here. Um, but, but he had people with him. Okay, I, I'll just move on for, for time's sake. What I want you to see here is his tribe, his people that, that were going with him, they got stopped real quick in a place called Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. There were real-life Canaanites in that land. 
And what I think happened here is two things. The Oak of Moray was most um, likely a place for pagan worship. Worship in those days often involved terebinth trees because they thought they involved healing properties. And Moray means teacher. So Abram's God, his new God, had just met an enemy. And he was conflicted with a previous lifestyle of idolatry, witchcraft, and man-made worship at Shechem. He didn't know what to do. He saw all these Canaanites around him. Perhaps they they were speaking a different language because God changed their languages, right? They're different. They look different. They have a different culture. So he's a real fish out of water and now he's intimidated by these antagonists of God's people. And so Abram's obedience went from a full sprint, leaving, going, all in, to a sudden stop. He stops in Shechem. Where did his faith go? I don't think his faith left. But I do think his obedience naturally met opposition. See, I don't think we realize that obeying God is different from what everybody else does. (laughs) Right? So that means if we're doing different things from everybody else, we're going to meet opposition. If you obey God, you will have opposition. It's guaranteed. Moses didn't want to obey. Why? Because he knew the opposition that would happen if he approached Pharaoh and was like, yeah, you got to let these guys go. He knew that was going to be tough. That was going to be an opposition that that was difficult. And so the other camp of non-obedience, if you do have the truth in you, I think belongs to those who are facing opposition. We've, We've halted in our tracks because we've come to this realization of just how difficult the task is to obey God. God has not taken back His gift. We're just stuck. And so what do we do when we're stuck trying to obey? We pray. We seek counsel from other godly people. And we trust in the precious promises of God. That His Word is good and He does not lie. When was the last time you prayed about the difficult situation that has halted you from obeying Christ? Do you pray about it? Have you you just, man, poured your soul out before the Lord over how difficult it is to obey because of a present circumstance? When was the last time you went to a brother or sister and said, will you help me? I don't know how to obey Jesus here. This is harder than I thought. You know, I didn't see this coming. I don't know how to keep obeying. Will you help me? Have you been through this? What did you do? Did did God keep his promise? When was the last time you were so paralyzed with the troubles of earth that you went to the Bible and you found God's precious promises to be better than life itself? And of course, if we're talking about obedience, there's no better encourager than the very obedience of Jesus. Philippians 2.8 says that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews 5.8, we read it last week in Scripture reading, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Matthew 26, Jesus says, Let this cup pass from Me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. Let your will be done, I will obey. And then most epic mic drop verse of all, Romans 5, 9, 
For as the one man's disobedience, they were made sinners, so by the one man's, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Here is your comfort and encouragement to obey. Christ's obedience took your sin to the cross so that you could trust in the precious promises of God, knowing that He will not lie, He will not leave you nor forsake you. He has won righteousness for you triumphantly through the resurrection. His obedience is your acceptance. And His resurrection is your spirit-empowered strength to put on the new man and to walk in newness of life. Do you know what the obedience of Christ has won for you. It is enough. Come and rest in what He has accomplished, in His work. Find Christ your all in all. And then surrendering your all in all will be a joyful task. And obeying becomes a joy. For the rest of us, we trust and obey And along with prayer and counsel and God's promises, the Lord gave Abram one last thing to help him get through that tough time at Shechem. That was his confirmation. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Listen, God confirms his promises to his people. Previously, Abram had only a word from the Lord. Now in verse 7, God straight up shows up. It says the Lord appeared to him. He was surrounded by Canaanites, tempted to sin against God with old habits questioning the quest all together. And then God showed up. It's hard to know for sure what this appearance was like, but whatever it was like, it was enough. This heavenly portrait spoke, saying to your offspring, I will give this very land that you're standing on. This means the strange land of temptation he was in would soon be flowing with God's glory and Abram's offspring, even though his wife was barren. And with renewed confidence and trust in the Lord, Abram does what? Cuts down a tree, and he builds an altar, and he sacrifices animals, and he worships the Lord. And then he left over near Bethel, and I, and he cuts down another tree, and he built another altar, and put more animals on that altar, and worshiped the Lord again. Goodbye, idolatry and fear. Hello, joy-filled worship in the all-satisfying God. Family, the Lord may not appear to us in our ninth hour in the way that the Lord did to Abram, but He will confirm our calling when we need it. We have the Holy Spirit working within us every single day, convicting us of sin, reminding us of the power of the gospel. The evil one says we are worthless, weak, failing the Spirit and the Word testify that we are beloved, strong, and triumphant in Christ. So we walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. When you are weak, when we are tempted to sin, ready to throw in the towel of obedience, God will confirm your calling. And we we know this calling was fully confirmed because now Abram understood his proper place in the big picture. 
See, back in the beginning of chapter 12, verse 2, God's promise was to make His name great. Which is interesting because it's the very sin of the Tower of Babel incident, right? They were trying to make their name great. But God determines He's going to make Abram's name great. And how does the narrative end? Abram built an altar. And he called on the name of the Lord. Not on the name of Abram. Not on the name of his glory. But on the name of God's. Until we see that we exist for God's glory. And for the worship of Christ. Whose name is greater than all other names in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We won't obey. We won't move forward in obedience. I can tell you the faith that God has given me in the gospel has gripped me for His glory. I sin, I struggle like anybody else, but I am not after my own kingdom. I'm after God's. His glory has become my pleasure. And I share that with you because I want you to have that. What a, what a free life. To know that it's not about you. But to call upon the name of the Lord. Who is worthy. Whose fame is infinite. And whose fame will reach every end of the earth. And He will use us to do that. We are people all about His glory. And when we understand that. Oh, obedience is fun. Oh, it is not a struggle. It is not a weight. It is not a burden to obey the Lord. He's our Father. And we long to see other people enjoy our Father. From every tribe and tongue and nation, from neighborhoods to uh, our own children, to our co-workers, we love His glory. And so those who truly believe the Word of God will forsake all else to become worshipers of the Lord and to serve in His commission to bless the whole earth for His glory. May it be so of Main Street Baptist Church. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we need Your help to obey. Maybe some of us here today are just, man, we're just in a sinful rut. We haven't thought about Your Word. We haven't thought about Your commandments. We've just been watching the news, making it by, playing around on social media, trying to numb the pain of, of life. But Father, I pray that you would illumine those hearts right now. Oh God, would you speak as you spoke to Abram? Would you wake up the dying soul that does not know Christ? And show them the goodness and the glory of Jesus who has been a perfect, obedient son on our behalf. Oh, Father, would you, would you save before it's too late? And now give them a, a newfound joy, joyful life of, of, of obeying and disciple them here in this church, Lord. And for those of us here that, that may be just struggling to obey, we've met opposition we found the Canaanites at Shechem and all the moon worshipers, and we're just overtorn. We, we, we perhaps want to go back to our old sin. We, we are struggling with, with temptation. Or, or we're just confused and we're scared. We don't know how to take the steps forward to obey what you, what you ask of us. 
how to live the Christian life and have this worldview among us. I pray, Lord, for, for, for us in that, in that category that we might pray, we might seek good counsel, or we might call upon your name, knowing that your word is good. Your word is eternal. Where else can we go but the word of eternal life? So, Father, speak to us and make this place a lighthouse of obedience that runs in the opposite direction of the world. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll invite our musicians to come forward. and We will sing together of the blessed shield that God has put about us. Uh, if you're not a Christian, I'd love for you to call on the name of the Lord. He will save. He will. If you are uh, struggling and you just need this time to respond to the Lord, to repent, do that. If you want to go and pray with, pray with someone, you know, you can do that. Uh, take this time, however you need, to, to call out to Christ for what He has done for us. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.